Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nail the Dortho podcast. You are tuned into our OITE slash board series review. And yes, we are finally starting on a new subject or a new uh, new topic. We are done with basic science. Hooray, hooray. And we are now on to spine. So we're going to talk a little bit about spine. If this is your first time listening to this podcast or this series, this is our review series where we try to go over high yield topics for our exams that we take on a yearly basis as well as our board exams at the end of the residency cycle so again we try to cover high yield topics this is done by myself and then dr spencer woolwine we have been doing some episodes and this will be our fourth specialty the first one we did was trauma the second one was sports and then basic science and now we are on to the world of spine so please go ahead and hit the subscribe button if you have not already please tell one friend or colleague about this podcast that would help us out a bunch and if you leave a review in itunes that would also help us out a lot so without further ado let's go ahead and get into today's episode you are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors jay fitz and wendell cole All right. Hello. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed Ortho podcast. And you are now tuned back into our OIT or I guess board reviews. We can kind of say now uh, featuring myself and Dr. Woolwine. So uh, welcome. And uh, Dr. Woolwine, how you doing? You know, I'm doing pretty well. It's uh, good to be getting back into this stuff and finishing up all of these other topics and uh, moving forward. Yeah, we took a little a little break there, and I, I was just telling you before uh, we got we got our OIT scores back, and uh, the the topics that we have covered on the OIT review series I did well in, but the other ones, you know, not not as good. But <laughs> <laughs> so there's you got you got next year by definitely by by next year we'll have everything covered. So yeah, we got time. We'll we'll go through this and. And now we're into a little bit of spine, you know, so, um, you know, I'm looking forward to talking some spine and, you know, there's only one person in our program that's going into spine right now. And, you know, so we, we do some spine, we don't do a whole bunch of it, but, um, you know, it'll be interesting to go ahead and get this talk going. And, yeah. um, and I guess we can just go over some cervical spine and we'll just go over some basics and then kind of just build from there. Um, but one of the big things that we all hear is cervical spondylosis. And so what is cervical spondylosis? Cervical spondylosis is really just a, a long word for just chronic disc degeneration. And it's usually associated with uh, cervical facet arthropathy. So it's, um, I mean, if you were to kind of liken it to a knee, it's like a degenerative meniscus tear with knee arthritis is kind of the same thing. So you have uh, the intervertebral disc degenerates, then you start getting the facet arthropathy and then pain. And sometimes this, this pain is described in several different manners uh, and those being radiculopathy, myelopathy, discogenic back pain, and then you have myeloradiculopathy. And so what's kind of the difference between those four types of described pain? Yeah. And I remember it took me a while to, you know, figure this out or, you know, when I was a, a med student or early resident, I thought they're mostly all the same. I didn't know what, what they were talking about, but 
Uh, so ho- hopefully we cleared up for some people. But so radiculopathy is just uh, is nerve root disease. So when you think of this, you, this is kind of that radiating pain. Um, that's radiculopathy. So nerve root disease. Uh, myelopathy is going to be spinal cord disease. So any pathology that's actually involved in the spinal cord itself. That's where, you know, we'll get a physical exam a little bit later. We'll talk about upper motor neuron signs and, you know, et cetera. So disease of the actual spinal cord itself is going to be myelopathy. The disease of the actual nerve root or that radiating pain is going to be the radiculopathy. And we have discogenic, and that is just pain due to um, vertebral disc disease. So um, that's what you call that discogenic um, pain. Or sometimes if you look or read it up, they'll talk about that aching pain that's just localized to your back. But this is just pain that originates from a damaged vertebral disc. And then you have myeloradiculopathy, which if you just think about it, you, the myelo part is you're going to have disease in the spinal cord and then radiculopathy, you're going to have nerve root dysfunction. So it's going to be both. It's going to be spinal cord and nerve root dysfunction. Now, one of the age-old questions, and you know, we're talking about nerve roots. Um, do the cervical nerve roots exit above or below their corresponding vertebra? Uh, this is probably one of the um, important things to to know for the OIT and for the boards to to help get you a couple questions. Is uh, this kind of key part of the anatomy? And so, when we're talking about the cervical vertebrae, the corresponding root will exit above the uh, vertebral body that you're talking about. So a disc herniation uh, between C4 and C5 will involve the C5 nerve root because it's exiting above the C5 vertebral body. Um, And the reason for this is because there's only seven cervical vertebral bodies, but there's eight uh, cervical nerve roots. So, um, in between C7 and T1, um, it's not going to be T1 that exits, it's going to be C8. And then after that, as we will talk about later on, when we talk about the thoracic and lumbar spine, once you get to T1, all of those nerve roots will exit below the corresponding vertebral body. Um, and then when, uh, somebody comes in complaining of neck pain and they say, yeah, you know, it, it radiates down my arm. And, um, every time I kind of move my head like this, I get a twinge of pain. Um, they may be kind of producing their own spurling test, but what does, uh, what is a spurling test and what is like a positive finding suggestive of? Yeah. So spurling test is going to be, when you have their neck and you rotate it, so you ro- you rotate their neck, you kind of put a lateral bend and axial compression. So like you have your hand on their head, you lean it to the side, uh, you rotate it to the right, as well as bring that, I guess you could say, ear towards the shoulders, along with um, putting some axial compression on the head. And a positive sign is going to be when they get that reproduction of the radiating symptoms down a particular nerve root. And so a positive spurling sign is going to suggest nerve root pain. So positive, positive spurling, you're going to see that with radiculopathy. And uh, we'll go over that, uh, I'm sure, many times during our spine talks. Since we're on this, you know, spine physical exam stuff, um, what, is a, what is a positive lehermite? I'm sure I just butchered the name, um, <laughs> test suggests, a positive lehermite, lehermite test. Yeah, I think it's pronounced uh, lehermite, but... Uh, uh. 
It mm-hmm. is uh, it's specific for cervical myelopathy. And as you had talked about before, myelopathy is uh, just another word for spinal cord disease rather than nerve root disease. And um, basically what the Lermite test is when you uh, when C-spine flexion and extension causes radiating pain kind of uh, down the, uh, it can be the arms, but that's that sounds more like radiculopathy. It's especially when it goes down into the lower extremities, because what you're doing with this C-spine flexion and extension is uh, causing stretch, uh, stretching and compression of the spinal cord. And that's where that myelopathy is uh coming from. So uh, it's when they really forward flex their spine or really hyperextend their spine when they get these sort of symptoms. Um, yeah. And then going all the way down to the uh, hand, uh, there's a specific test and they'll either show you a video of it on the OITE or ABOS, or they'll describe it for you as uh, when you flick the long finger distal phalanx and you're looking at the thumb interphalangeal joint flexion, what is that test for and what's it called? Yeah, I believe that that is the Hoffman test that, uh, that you are talking about, that you're referring to kind of when you're flicking the distal phalanx, looking to see if the thumb flexes and, and what this does is test a long track neural pathway. And this is really sensitive for cervical myelopathy. Um, just shout out Dr. Syriac, who did our episode on cervical myelopathy. If you want to learn some more about that, go ahead and go back and listen to that episode. Um, but yes, yeah, so this is the uh, the Hoffman test. Now, you know, we're kind of talking about cervical myelopathy, which we talked about earlier is disease of the spinal cord. Uh, and so what is a positive Babinski or a positive Clonus um, physical exam finding suggest? Yeah, so a positive Babinski um, or clonus sign is going to test an upper motor neuron pathology. And um, that is, I believe, the, the uh, test where you're uh, like the positive clonus is when you're forcefully dorsiflexing the foot and seeing if their foot is going to pump uh, back against you. And then the Babinski is the uh, one where you're stimulating the bottom of the foot and um, you're checking to see if they flex down or curl their toes or if they extend against you. And um, so a positive Babinski or positive clonus is upper motor neuron pathology. And so um, uh, one of the things uh, also, uh, I mean, all of this is important, obviously, but the things that I think you're going to get tested on a lot are the kind of dermatomal patterns of uh, these cervical spine uh, radiculopathies. And so let's say there's a patient who uh, in this scenario where they have weakened wrist extension and numbness along the radial forearm and thumb and an abnormal brachioradialis reflex. Um, what level um, is the is the pathology for that one? Yeah, so that's gonna be around um, C five, C six. So the abnormal brachioradialis reflex should uh, clue you into that's uh, C six. Um, so C six again, yeah, reflex to test that uh, nerve level is gonna be brachioradialis. 
And again, just another thing is this isolated wrist extension is going to be C6 as well. And then numbness along that radial forearm and numb all C6. Um, now, what maneuvers test the C7 reflex arc? Uh, C7 is going to be the triceps reflex test. And uh, briefly to go over some of the others, uh, like C5 is going to be a biceps reflex. C6 is going to be a brachioradialis reflex. And C7 is going to be the triceps, um, whereas C8 does not have a associated uh, reflex with it. So the, the major choices that you're going to have to choose from are between C5, 6, and 7. And uh, uh, let's say we have a new patient, uh, uh, next patient in clinic compared to the other one, and um, they complain of grip weakness and numbness over the small and ring finger. What the cervical new nerve root would be affected with them? Grip weakness or anything, you think kind of the intrinsics, and that's going to be C8. Um, so numbness over the small and ring finger is going to be C8. Like we said a little bit earlier, going to the thumb and radial forearm numbness is going to be C6. Um, and so when we're talking about what's going to affect the grip weakness and numbness over the small and ring finger, again, that's going to be the C8 nerve root, which is going to be at the C7 to T1 um, uh, vertebral level. Because we spoke about it a little bit earlier that the cervical nerve roots um, exit above uh, their corresponding um, vertebra. So earlier we talked and mentioned that a disc herniation at C4 or 5 would involve the C5 nerve root. And at C7, T1, it'll involve the C8 nerve root. And just because we know repetition is key, um, what cervical nerve root and spine level is going to be affected in a patient with shoulder abduction weakness, numbness over the lateral arm, and an abnormal biceps reflex? So the abnormal biceps reflex will clue you into C5. And uh, again, the spine level affected is going to be the C4, C5 level. So the uh, C5 nerve root is going to exit above uh, the C5 vertebral body. And uh, that is going to be associated with the uh, shoulder abduction weakness and numbness over the lateral arm, not the lateral forearm like we talked about earlier, which is C6. So uh, another way to think about it is the C5 nerve root is more superior than C6, and that is what is going to affect you. So the, the more superior nerve root is going to affect higher up on the arm than the more distal nerve root. That's just an easy way for me to think about it. Um, and then what is a tandem gait and what is it indicative of? Yeah, so a tandem gait is, is pretty much like the heel to toe walking. Um, and and that's just used to kind of screen patients for a numerous, uh, a lot of different neurological disorders. And so balance issues doing this kind of may indicate that a patient may possibly have cervical myelopathy, myelopathy or something going on. So again, this is something that clues you in towards any neurological and something like actually be vestibular um, um, disorders. So ear stuff as well. Um, but again, so tandem gait is going to be that heel to toe walk. I feel like um, that's what they do with DUIs, right? Like not DUI, but if they pull you over and they suspect that you drink too much, they have you walk in a straight line, heel to toe. Or at least yep. so I've seen on movies. I've never 
had a DUI, but <laughs> this is what I've seen <laughs> on movies. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I I think that that's a part of the test. I know that they do some know. other field sobriety tests, but yeah, it's it's definitely just a, for the balance uh, issues that uh, can be associated with cervical myelopathy, like you said, and then sometimes something more superior within whether it's vestibular within the ear or like a cerebellar lesion Um, yeah yeah and and so like you know we're going through this exam and you know they're in a clinic and you have them do a a heel to toe walk they're okay with that and then you know some some um some spine surgeons will say okay well walk over on your toes and then walk back over on your heels and what's the point of that what does that evaluate do we just do that just so just to see if they can do it like what's the really point of doing that uh, so uh, they're checking uh, lower extremity and distal lower extremity strength, not necessarily like uh, the kind of hip girdle quads or hamstrings. They're looking more at the distal legs. So to walk on your heels, you need strong uh, tibialis anterior strength to keep that foot uh, dorsiflexed as you put pl- pressure on your heel. And then they're testing the uh, gastroc soleus complex for the toe walking to make sure that you can go up on your on your toes and back on your heels so that's that's really what they're looking at is the distal major muscle group strength um, and then uh, this is more associated with uh, patients in a trauma setting um, and it's called the bobo cavernosis reflex um, what does uh, the recovery of that reflex typically indicate. Yeah. So the recovery of that um, indicates the end of spinal shock, which is around 48 hours or so after the start of spinal shock and bubble cavernosis reflex. For those that are wondering, you pull on the Foley and you know, you should, you should, uh, well, most of these, most people should know this from medical school, but you, if you pull on the phony, the anal sphincter should contract, I believe. Yes. Um, so that's the bubble cavernosis uh, reflex. Um, I have not had to do one of these, but we don't take much, um, much spine trauma call, but I assume if you're at any facility where you um, do a lot of spine trauma call or you do a lot of, you know, scoliosis cases or a lot of, you know, spine procedures that you should know what this is and how to evaluate patients um, that are, may possibly be in spinal shock. Um, continuing forward, what are some things to look for on different cervical spine x-ray views so we're looking at the x-rays of the c-spine now yeah the and one thing for looking at x-rays this is one thing i did in uh residency that i thought was very helpful and i tried to encourage as many of my co-residents to do this as possible is to to look at as many normal x-rays as possible so that when you see an abnormal x-ray you can usually identify stuff fairly quickly because you're so used to looking at a bunch of normal stuff. And how I did that is I just kind of went through the x-ray. Our EMR was set up in a way where I could look at every x-ray that was shot at a particular clinic um, Mm. on a given day. And if I had a few minutes between cases or I was on call overnight, I was checking those x-rays just to see if I can find anything and most of the time everything is completely normal but once you start to see the abnormal uh, you'll you'll pick it up uh, fairly quickly and so when we're looking at the c-spine x-rays on the ap view um, 
you're looking at uncovertebral joint pathology. And what that is, is uh, the uncovertebral joints are uh, when the vertebral body kind of curves up or curves superior at the most lateral aspects of both sides. That's the uncovertebral joint. Then when you look at the lateral, you're looking at the sagittal alignment, whether they are in uh, cervical kyphosis, whether there's excessive cervical lordosis, you're looking for disc space narrowing uh, because that kyphosis or the, I mean, it's normally lordosis, but if you have kyphosis and you have a, an x-ray because of that angular uh, appearance of the spine on an AP, you can't get a really good view of the actual disc space itself. So that's best viewed on the lateral. Um, uh, you can see either whether there's like a listhesis or a dislocation of the cervical spine and then any uh, anterior osteophytes or anything associated with like a dish or a OPLL uh, ossified posterior longitudinal ligament uh, lesions. And then on the flexion and extension views, those are all done on the lateral and you're looking for C-spine instability or any pseudoarthrosis of uh, uh, attempted uh, ACDF or posterior fusion. Um, you're also getting the flexion and extension lateral views with your rheumatoid patients pre-op uh, to see if there's any uh, instability before they get intubated. And then you can get an oblique view, which is looking at like the neuroforaminal stenosis. Uh, and a lot of times that's difficult to see. And you're, you're probably at that point already getting an MRI to look at that stuff, but you can still see it on the oblique. And then finally that odontoid view where it's an up close uh, x-ray of just the uh, superior portion of the C-spine with the mouth wide open. So you get a good view of the odontoid and you're looking at any uh, C1 or C2 fractures at that point. Um, and so we, we talked about what cervical radiculopathy is, um, but what are some of the major causes of it? Yeah. So uh, I think a, a, a common cause that a lot of people know of is going to be the disc herniation. So your um, intervertebral body disc herniations that can um, herniate and go into that nerve root space and give you those radicular symptoms or you know anything that kind of compresses that area uh, where the nerve is traversing. You can also have an uncovertebral osteophyte. Again, this is something else that decreases the amount of space for which that nerve root is passing through. Um, a facet arthropathy, arthropathy um, you can have a thickened ligamentum flavum, and then you can also have degenerative spondylosis, uh, which with that, you kind of have foraminal stenosis from those chondrial osseous spurs. So again, the main thing here is this is something that is decreasing the amount of space for that nerve root to travel through. And when you get kind of some compression or any compromise of that nerve root, you can get those symptoms um, or those radiculopathy symptoms, especially that we talked a little about, about earlier that kind of go on those dermatomal um uh, fashions. Now, what are some, um, <laughs> oh, I just, I just said it. <laughs> I just realized, well, the, ne the next question is going to be, what are some symptoms of a uh, cervical radiculopathy? But I just kind of said some of it. So, you know, you have pain, uh, you have numbness and paresthesis and a dermatomal distribution. So 
looks like we said a little bit earlier, if something is involving the C6 nerve root, they may have pain and, and numbness uh, involving the lateral forearm and their big thumb and, and index finger per se. So uh, just know that. And, and so what is a way to distinguish between C8 through T1 um, radiculopathy and cubital tunnel syndrome? Uh, yeah, so those are, I, I mean, they involve the same, well, similar nerves, like the, the ulnar nerve is associated with some portion of uh, the C8, but also um, when you're looking at uh, C8, T1 radiculopathy versus cubital tunnel syndrome, looking at the ulnar forearm and uh, the sensations that they have in that region uh, is going to differentiate between those two because the ulnar forearm is actually innervated by the medial anabrachial cutaneous nerve and not the ulnar nerve. You, you don't get ulnar nerve sensation until distally around the wrist and uh, ulnar aspects of the hand. And most commonly, it's the uh, small and ring finger that we all know when we fall asleep on our flexed elbows while reading oh, all the time or, or listening to a podcast <laughs> and you wake up and you're like, holy cow, my, my pinky and ring finger are numb. That's through the cubital tunnel and involving the ulnar nerve. Whereas the ulnar forearm is more innervated by that medial anabricular cutaneous nerve. And that's how you differentiate between those two. And so, uh, moving on to the hand, uh, the, if you're looking at the hand and the intrinsic hand muscles are weak, what are some of the potential causes of uh, intrinsic muscle atrophy and weakness? Yeah, so that could be median and ulnar nerve compression, or you know, this can be from a C8-T1 radiculopathy. Both of these things can give you um, kind of weakened um, hand intrinsic muscles. We all know the ulnar nerve controls a lot of the uh, intrinsics as well as the median. So uh, median and ner ulnar nerve uh, compression, as well as a C8-T1 radiculopathy can cause um, some weakened hand intrinsic muscles. Now, uh, moving on to cervical radiculopathy, you know, kind of fo focusing on that a little bit more. Um, what are some things that you may see on an x-ray in patients with cervical radiculopathy? Uh, once again, that's that uh, the radiculopathy is the nerve root symptom. So the symptoms that you get as the individual nerve exits the uh, spine and goes into the corresponding extremity. And so the things that affect it as it leaves the spinal cord is uh, things like uncovertebral arthritis with osteophytes and uh possibly some facet joint arthropathy that causes osteophytes that then interfere with the neural foramina leading to foraminal stenosis. And uh, once you get the stenosis, you can get this positive spurling test and everything that leads you down the road of thinking that this is more of a cervical radiculopathy rather than a peripheral nerve uh, issue. And uh we, we see a bunch of these patients in clinic. We see the ones that, I mean, they, they say, yeah, I have neck and shoulder pain. It hurts when I bring my arm up overhead. It hurts when I turn my head this way. What's some of the first line treatment that you're going to give these patients uh, to help them improve their symptoms and get them either back to work or, or more functional? 
Yeah, so non-op treatment for cervical radiculopathy, first thing is going to be NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, um, oral steroids, so some people will prescribe a Medjol dose pack. Again, I am obviously not a board-certified spine physician, but this is what I've read in my reading. Um, uh, epidural injections, which can be diagnostic and therapeutic, as well as physical therapy, and some studies show 75% of patients get better with non-operative treatment. So again, just to uh, reiterate, this can be NSAIDs, oral steroids, um, epidural injections, as well as physical therapy. And... Um, Maybe I probably should have asked this beforehand, but what are some things that you may actually see on an MRI in patients with uh, cervical radiculopathy? Yeah, we went over the x-ray findings and the stuff you see from the bony aspect. And uh, now with the uh, MRI, um, we're looking at the bony aspect, but also the more soft tissue stuff that we can't pick up on x-ray. So that's going to be the disc herniation. Um Another finding called CSF effacement and also like a disc osteophyte complex with foraminal stenosis. And that's when, so you're primarily going to see a lot of the disc herniations um, on, or at least their true location on the axial views as you go uh, cranial or caudal through the cervical spine. Um, You will see the herniations on the sagittal, but the sagittal is going to be key for uh, the foraminal stenosis and seeing exactly which uh, level is affected by the uh, disc herniation. And um... thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nail and Ortho podcast, our first episode of Spine. So we hope you all enjoyed it. I know we talked over some kind of general basic things, but we will continue to move deeper and deeper into the world of Spine. Now, please, again, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, hit the subscribe button. Please go leave us a review in iTunes, Google Stay, Google Play, excuse me, Stitcher, or however you listen to this podcast. That would really help us out a bunch. Please go do that. It takes approximately 15 seconds to do so. If you're writing a review, it takes three seconds to do so. If you're just leaving a rating, please, both of those would help out. So until next time, good luck with studying and stay tuned.